This week on the In-Depth Podcast, we're giving you another look at our interview with iconic broadcaster Joe Buck. Now here I am, am I really ready for this? Am I capable of doing a World Series? I don't feel like you ever really feel totally comfortable with that. At only 20 years old, he gets his first Major League Baseball play-by-play job. At 25, he's calling National Football League games. And by 27, his first World Series. My heart was going to jump out of my chest. It just was awesome and exciting. Now with six Super Bowls and nearly two dozen World Series calls on his resume, Buck opened up about the health scare that nearly ended his extensive career. Every time I said a sentence, I was like, oh my God, I sound awful. Plus, Buck details the final moments with his late Hall of Fame father. He said to me, I hope my time in here laying in this bed has taught you to make the most out of your time. But our 2012 sit down begins with an antidote regarding close friends and sneaking words into nationally televised broadcasts. So I wanted to start off by talking about, do, do your friends uh, still text you uh, words during games? No, I I did that and, when and, I was... And do you say no because it got yeah, so it much got hype? People, or did, I mean, did, did you actually cut it off? Yeah, no, I cut it off because people would send me... What you're referring to is people would send me words to get into a broadcast. And uh, it was like kind of a funny thing. You know, hey, send me a word, I'll get it in. And the words became dumber and dumber and more impossible to get into a baseball game. Uh, octopus is not a fun one to try and work into. Did you work casual, it in? Oh, yeah. Work it into a casual conversation around a baseball game play-by-play, play, but, uh, you know, you can do it. You worked in Wasabi? Wasabi, yeah, I did. Um, Jub-Jub. You know, Jub-Jub I did Conan. for Conan O'Brien. Yeah. And I started talking about it so much, I didn't really care about it, but... Right. The guys I worked with were like, hey, man, cool it with that. Because you look oh, like really? you have, that, yeah, well, not my bosses, but guys that I have around me that make me think the right way uh, were like, nah, that doesn't look good. So I, I, not only do they not send me, do I not talk about it, they don't even send me words anymore. I kind of shut that game down. What was the hardest one you worked in? Um, gosh, I don't know. Uh, you know, just... Yeah, like if somebody sent me automatopoeia, you know, I know how to spell it, but I don't know what it means. Yeah. So uh, sometimes on a Cardinal game, I remember going to break and, <laughs> you know, I had like $20. I had $20 riding on this one. And I just said, so at the end of four innings, Cardinals lead 5-4, automatopoeia. <laughs> that was it. And oh, I got it in, but it just was a drop-in yeah. and a non-sequitur. I wanted to talk a little bit about your parents. You know, um, your dad uh, appropriately gets a lot of credit and is brought up, uh, you know, quite a bit. Your dad being the uh, legendary Hall of Fame, uh, longtime Cardinals broadcaster. Um, but just by nature of the job he had, he couldn't have been around probably as much as he would have liked while you were growing up. Right. And so it was your mom that you spent a lot of time with, people ask you this question about your dad all the time, so I thought it would be interesting to uh, flip it around. Your mom, uh, Carol, what would you say you most learned from her? I think, well, first of all, I think I learned more about, if you want to call what I do performing from my mom than I did my dad. I think what I got from my dad is not a lot different than a lot of kids growing up in the Midwest got from my dad, as far as the style, the way he did a game. There, there are a lot of guys that came up, that grew up in the Midwest, that wanted to be Jack Buck and wanted to sound and do a game like Jack Buck. I was in that category. I also happened to be his son. But because he did travel as much as he did, my mom had to be mother, a lot of the times father. Uh, she had to be the disciplinarian. She had to be the one to you know, make you feel better when you skinned your knee, that kind of stuff. She did everything. And you know, he met her when she was an actress and singing on Broadway. And she's got as much performing ability and in some ways a very unique skill set that, that I don't have, uh, the ability to sing in front of people and act and do all that stuff. And she's my best critic. So uh, yeah, Better than your dad. Oh, better than my dad. I think what really benefited me and, and inadvertently drove me into being a broadcaster was that my dad never pushed me toward it. Because I was so enamored with what came with his job. I was hooked on it early because I loved him so much and he was my best friend. Uh, I ended up spending a lot of time with him and enjoying what he did as, as a broadcaster. But 
but he never was the guy going, okay, you're going to do this, and then you're going to go to Louisville, and you're going to, and then you're going to broadcast this way, and let's listen to your tapes. None of that. He just let me find my own way, and uh, and my mom will be the one to say, you know, that that was you know great job, or she's told me before, you know, you sounded like you weren't interested, or you sounded like. Uh, you were tired, or you sounded like, and, and it gets my attention. I don't like hearing it, but uh, she's right, and I'll go back and listen to it, and, uh, you know, she, she's the one that I get my most, uh, my most feedback from. What do you think she taught you about the on-air work? Um, you know, I think I get whatever presence I have or don't have on camera from her more than I do my dad. I think, you know, my dad by, by nature and by timing was a radio guy. And when he, at the end of his career, was working at CBS and broadcasting with Tim McCarver, who I do the games with now, uh, I think he, he was not only a radio guy doing TV. To me, at times, he sounded like a radio guy doing TV. It just wasn't what he knew. Um, and on-camera stuff and you know, it just, he, he was the best baseball announcer, best football announcer I ever heard in my life. But I think as far as presence and a, you know, a smile and a way of thinking when I'm on camera, I, I think I get whatever I get there from my mom. What do you recall from the experiences of just as you were growing up being in the booth with your father? That was my home. And it was my summer home. It was my home even during school. It was my, I, I would go down there every night. And so... Uh, I, I just, I admired the way my dad not only did his job, but what caught my attention were the people he had through there and how he used that as an opportunity to raise money for uh, cystic fibrosis or to welcome a young burn victim. He used it for people to, to give them an experience they, they never dreamed of. And I mean, he paid attention to him when he was in the booth and he amble down there and do the inning and come back up and make him feel like a million dollars. So to see that and see how to, he reacted and interacted with people, um, that, was, that was an eye-opening thing that uh, I carry to this day. And I, you know, he, he's, he wasn't the kind of guy that had a, an ego at all. He was there to help others and loved people. And, and I've tried to carry that forward myself. To, to what extent did you find that helped you a lot? I mean, you know, as you saw how he handled fame and people coming up to him when you've since been in similar situations? Well, you know, I think there's, a, there's another layer to that. I think when you get into the business as somebody's kid, while it opens up a thousand doors that wouldn't be open to you normally. I mean, I grew up going down there. So it wasn't like when I got my chance and I was broadcasting for real when I was 20 or 21 uh, out of that same booth, I was in awe of my surroundings. That was like broadcasting it out of my living room for the most part. It just eliminates all that stress and you can just kind of do the, do the job. I would tell you that, uh, that being somebody's son and getting into it, I, I think for the rest of your life, you fight the nepotism thing, no matter what you do after that. And you know, my dad was so well known in St. Louis and so well known nationally that, you know, I will forever be known as Jack Buck's kid. But, I mean, maybe in St. Louis, I, I think that's... No, I get it. Believe me. I get it, you know, when I was very active on Twitter. That was one of the main things that people would fire at me as a criticism. You know, good thing you had a famous dad, you suck. I can't believe you're doing this game. And people know that stuff. And I think it's only human nature. But to answer your question... Uh, I never looked at being a major league announcer or an NFL announcer or whatever as the end all. I, you know, there are other things I want to do with my life. And I, I've got the best job in the world. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Uh, but it's not, that doesn't entitle me to be a jerk. Uh, if I get hit by a bus walking into the stadium, they won't even have a moment of silence. And I promise you they'll play the game. So that's not why... I'm there. That's not why somebody's tuning in the game. Could be why somebody tunes it off, but that's not why somebody's watching their team. So when people start thinking that way, that that's why they're there, I think it's a, it's a quick spiral downward and you're going to get slapped uh, in the face. And I just, that's how I saw him. 
the game was it. The players, they were it, not the guy calling it. And, and I can tell you, that's just not the, that's the way I think. I, I don't think the other way. And I see some guys that, that act and broadcast that way. Did, did you really lie on uh, your resume that was given to Fox to get the, you know, when you were trying out for the NFL play-by-play job that you had done football at Indiana I don't University? know if I lied. Uh, I think when I had conversations with them, uh, and, and it was those guys that were my bosses then remain my bosses right. now, and we all kind of laugh about that time because I'd never done football in my life. And they were like, you know, you've done football. I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah I, no, I did it. And I uh, did, did some in college. And absolutely, I got that down. Except, you know, they weren't that smart because the only video I had on then videotapes, which they used to have in this world, I gave them. It had a ton of baseball on it. It had me uh, hosting a couple specials. And then it had horse jumping, which I did on ESPN for Bud Sports. So it was mysteriously left off the tape because it didn't exist. And I had to go out there and audition right. and do a game off a TV monitor. And, uh, you know, I ended up getting the job just by sitting in a studio and doing, doing that audition. And I shudder to think if I had a bad day or did something that, that wasn't right, uh, you know, if I, if I missed on that job, who knows what would have happened. And you said for a while you felt like you were faking it. Uh, you know, in the booth. Well, I, I, I faked it when I was really young. I mean, I, mean, I mean, what do you mean, like, faking it? Well, because probably my voice was up here when I was 21, and I thought, you know what? I sound like a little four-year-old, and I need Actually, to... there is a big difference between your tapes, you know, then. Yeah, the, right. well, because I've retrained my voice. Um, I retrained my voice from an upper register. When I sang in high school, and I did sing in high school, I was up here and I, I can't get up there anymore um, because I, I faked my way to a lower voice. Every time I opened my mouth, if I wanted my voice here, I'd shot for down here to sound older than I was. I was doing major league games when I was 20, filling in, mm-hmm. uh, 21 when I was full time. And that's early. And, uh, you know, I, I just don't think I was as prepared as I could have been emotionally for that. Was there something you really did to train your voice? No, other than I, I what just you think just every time, you know, every time I opened my mouth, I consciously thought of sound older than you are. And, uh, you know, I don't know that I've ever really thought of it that way, but that's, that's what I was doing. And there are times where in sheer excitement, there's a call I made of a Ray Lankford play at the plate where he knocked over Darren Dalton, where I sounded like Peter Brady in the throes of puberty. And uh, I mean, I just lost it. My voice cracked and it's an exciting call, but it was embarrassing too. And uh, that was one where my dad said, here, sit down. I think it was the 12th inning. It really wasn't my turn. And then they won the game and I was like, thanks dad. Now I, you know, now I sound, now I've been exposed as the 12 year old I am. How did he help in getting those jobs early on? Well, I, I think, take the Cardinal job out of it. He helped with the Cardinal job because Flat out, I was my dad's kid, and it was unique or novel to have Jack Buck's son, Joe, who's now a broadcaster and has worked in Louisville, AAA broadcasting for two years, fill, I filled in for my dad. That was, it was, you know, that was the irony of that whole thing. Mm-hmm. That said, uh, at Fox, I think he helped because his reputation was that of a good guy, and I, I, I think I got into it. As, as being, hopefully, like him, a good person that, that will work hard. He was at CBS. Ed Gorin, who was one of the decision makers at Fox, was at CBS. He got the job to run the network. And, uh, you know, it was my mom who gave my resume tape to Ed Gorin's wife, and that's how I got the audition. Right. So beyond that, I mean, if I was no good or if they didn't think I would, they didn't owe my dad anything. It was a new network, and... I think they just wanted some new young guys. How long did it take you to get comfortable in the booth? Probably about five years. Um, probably about five years, but I don't know that you're ever really comfortable. I think the discomfort leads you to work really hard. And, uh, you know, I, I think the perception is for guys that do play by play, you just kind of roll in and 
show up and just start talking and whatever you see you describe and then you go home and that's the end of it. And, and I prepare really hard. I, I do a lot of work to get ready for a broadcast. And, and I think the comfort comes from knowing not just what I have to do to get ready for a game, but even more so what I don't have to do and what I can eliminate from my preparation so that I'm totally ready. And when the game starts, I can just react. And, you know, I've put the work in, so I'm ready to go. Where does the discomfort come from? Uh, well, I mean, forever, you know, every broadcaster's nightmare and, and literal dream is showing up at a game where you don't know the names or who's playing or where you are or what the score is. You can't see the scoreboard and you're trying to fake your way through. Mm -hmm. When you do a World Series, and I was 27 the first time I did a World Series in New York, uh, that, that's plenty of discomfort. And you always feel like you're going to get exposed as some fraud. And I think part of that probably comes from being my dad's son and thinking, you know, well, I got this great break because I'm somebody's kid and now here I am, am I really ready for this? Am I capable of doing a World Series? Am I, do I really belong in this group of guys like Al Michaels and Bob Costas and Kurt Gowdy and Vin Scully and my dad? And I don't feel like you ever really feel totally comfortable with that. Take me through uh, the detailed progression of uh, your preparation for that week leading up to a game? Yeah, I mean, it's different now because I'm, I'm, you know, the weekend warrior. I just, I just do Saturdays or Sundays. So um, I, I don't like to miss a day. I like to make sure that I'm on top of what happens every day. It's hard to catch up. And for me, in my mind, uh, I can think in a sequential way, knowing that Monday this team did this, Wednesday they did, the, they did this, and on the way to Saturday or Sunday for football. So uh, just reading every day, reading a couple hours a day, um, and believe me, I don't, I don't feel or try to make my job sound harder than it is uh, preparation-wise, but uh, I read a couple hours a day. I will get on the phone and, and talk to whoever I feel like I need to if I have a question about something. I'll interact with would that be a beat writer for? It could be. Okay. Yeah, it could be a beat writer. It could be uh, a scout. I've got a guy that works with me, Steve Horn. Who sure. He, the main people he talks to are scouts that actually sit and watch these games and have an opinion. And it's not just statistics. And, and it's, it's, there's analytical stuff involved, too. And, uh, you know, seeing if, if these guys, where they're lacking physically, um, or what they're great at. That's that's what I love talking to him about. So he and I talk every day and kind of in preparation for whatever game we have that weekend. And then we get in, you know, baseball Friday for a Saturday game, football Friday for a Sunday game, go to the home team facility, watch tape, talk to players and coaches informally, and, and then talk as a group and interact and, and kind of point toward the game. Uh, how well... Do you recall the article the St. Louis Post-Dispatch as Dan Caesar wrote before you even called the Cardinals game? How I remember it really well. I remember one line of it really well. I remember my reaction to it really well. One line of it, and you probably read it, but it had in bold. What's most offensive about Joe Buck's hiring was blah, blah, blah. And it went on to say that there are so many guys struggling in the minor leagues trying to get their shot. And now here's this 21-year-old kid who's going to fill in for his dad because it's nepotism, and it's nepotism on steroids. And uh, that crushed me. I remember reading it, and I was still living at home. I mean, I didn't, even, I didn't have my own place at that point, and I was in the room that I grew up in, and I, I, I bawled. I cried because I thought, my God, this is how it's starting. How is this? Because I was nervous and not confident and didn't know if I could handle it. Now, all of a sudden, I'm offensive. My hiring's offensive. And uh, Dan and I, the writer of the article, laughed about it since because we've become, you know, good friends. And uh, But that was, a, that was a shocker. It was probably the best thing that could have happened to me, though, because that's real life, and that's, that's the real world. And the real world is... is it's natural to say, well, I know how he got his leg up. And uh, it, was, it was accurate. And, um, you know, I had to put my head down and plow right through that, which was good. And I know you say the criticism doesn't bother you today, but 
I mean, something tells me it gets to you a little more than you might lead on. Criticism does bother me. Um, I don't look for it. You know, you've always got the one friend that if somebody writes an article that you didn't see, they're sure to forward it to you so that you do see it. Um, but yeah, it bothers me because I've, you know, I had, it's, it's just maybe a weakness, but when I read stuff or, you know, that leads into the Twitter thing or that leads into Facebook or whatever that, you know, you stick your chin out there and, you know, you better be willing to have a really thick skin and put up with a lot of stuff because the sports world, it, it can get pretty vicious. And, uh, you know, I, I don't look for it. When I see it, I gulp and read it and move on about my life. But it, it gets in there. It's, the criticism has, is no longer just about the broadcasting career. I mean, people get on you about literally everything. I, oh, yeah. I Googled your name a few days you know, ago it's in preparation fun. for the interview. I mean, what, what's bothered you the, the most about all of that? Well, it bothers you to a certain extent. And then when you look at the bulk of it, you realize that they don't know me at all. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the fallacy of this whole thing is, and it's not just me, it, I'm a mosquito on this thing, but whether you're Jennifer Aniston or these people that get it all day, Britney Spears when she melted down, uh, people like that, you, you feel like you know these people, and so everybody has, feels like a right to comment on stuff that's going on in their life, and uh, I've just never bought into that because if you Google my name, I mean, that would put together the image of somebody that I'm not in any way, shape, or form. So, uh, you know, once you realize that, I, I don't know that you really get that wrapped up in it. So it's it's fine to let it live out here, out here, but I'm not really going and chasing all that stuff down. It you just it is what it is. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's kind of funny in some respects and it's it's kind of sad in other respects but it just that's the way of life you said the most intense feeling you've ever felt in the broadcast booth was I believe it was your second Super Bowl when the Giants beat the Patriots what about that made it so intense well I, you know you can let the size of the crowd when you do a Super Bowl overwhelm you if you want um, and that opening on camera is one of the most intense, awkward feelings you can ever have. In fact, it was at that Super Bowl when I was standing up there in front of the lights, Troy and I are getting ready, and there was about a minute 10 till we were on, and we're going to set up this game, the Super Bowl, and everybody's sitting around watching it. And our cameraman, Ben, who's always in the booth, great guy, is back there looking. He goes, you got something in your hair. And I'm like, what? And it starts the guy. I'm in a minute ten. Do I go on? He goes, I don't know. Just it's like a big glob of hair gel or something. You got to fix that. I'm like, I only got him. So I unhooked, ran into the bathroom, which was out and around, and I had this big clump of hair gel. Looked like, you know, something about Mary. And uh, uh, you can cut that out or don't. I don't <laughs> care. And I'm shushing that through to my relieve stress dead the hair. Game. Yeah, you talk about. And then so the whole time I'm on camera during that beginning of a Super Bowl going, how bad does my hair look right now? This is awful. And I'm not really listening. So that's the aside. The real part of it is in the fourth quarter with that kind of an audience, that kind of a game where it's going back and forth and New England's looking for a 19-0 and perfect season and, you know, the Giants are on fire and uh, playing great that postseason, and Eli is, you know, in his brother's shadow, and I mean, it was so intense. I, my heart was going to jump out of my chest, not because I was scared or nervous. It just was just awesome and exciting, and uh, which is funny because one of the criticisms you'll get from a Giants fan if you go online or whatever, which I'm sure you have, is the Tyree catch that I didn't scream and pull a groin about the Tyree catch, and you know, the funny thing is when you're doing that game, you have to be dead sure that, that what you're saying is right. And first of all, I could barely see Manning come out of there. And secondly, I, could, I couldn't see the catch all that well because there, it was twisted body. But it was, it was incredible. And that, that whole march down the field is something I'll never forget.
I want to touch on some notable games uh, from your career. The first one being uh, 17 years old, and you're in the booth with your dad, and you end up getting kind of forced onto the air. Literally. I mean, I, I got basically wrestled down onto the air, uh, I guess because of, of guilt. But uh, my dad and Mike were doing the game, and I was up in the back of the booth not really paying attention. And it was my 18th birthday. I think eight, maybe 17. You probably know better than me. No, I, at this point, I think you know better than me. Uh, it was on my birthday, and uh, it's at Shea Stadium, and I hear my dad say, now to take us through the fifth inning is my son, the birthday boy, Joe Buck. <laughs> and I hadn't been paying attention, and I'm like, no, please don't. And he and Mike got up and left the booth, so it was empty. And the inning starts, guy throws the first pitch, and... I run down there and do it. And it was, thankfully, one of the quickest innings I've ever done in my life. It was like a pop-up, a ground-out, and a strikeout. And uh, no scoring, no nothing. And I've never heard it since. So do Oh, really? It? No, I've never heard it. You, you were thrilled, though. I know you called one of your friends right afterwards, and you were excited that you got through it. Yeah, uh, I was. You, you had another... Uh, Good experience at Chase Stadium, the first uh, television broadcast that <laughs> you did. You were filling in for uh, Ken Wilson. I was doing TV, and I'd never done TV baseball before. I'd done radio in Louisville, and I came up to fill in at Chase Stadium, and it was the worst possible scenario because they had had a rain out, and so that day was a doubleheader. And they're like, Whatever ha whatever's going on at 7 o'clock Eastern time, 6 o'clock St. Louis time, that's when we come on the air. So if it's the middle of game one, if it's in between the two games, if it's, that's where we are. So when the clock strikes 7 in the East, for whatever reason, we were in the ninth inning of the first game. So we pop up on the air, and there I am doing the play-by-play -play of the ninth inning. And the Cardinals were winning, I think, because there was a break. And they said in the break... We're going to go through the highlights of what's happened. And I'd never done highlights in my life. So they're like, I'm like, okay. So they start running the highlights, and I can't keep up, and I don't know what's going on, and I'm trying to run on this treadmill, and I'm late, and I can't. Then in between, I'm going to do a stand-up thing on camera where I look in, and I recap the first game, and I'm telling about the Cardinals, and then I say, and now, and meanwhile, I've caked all this brown makeup on my face because I was on TV, that's what you're supposed to do is put makeup on your face. And I say, and now for an interview down the field, let's go to Al Roboski. And they're like, I see the person behind the camera like do this, like keep talking. Because Al couldn't find his mic down on the field. <laughs> so I, it's 150 degrees in the booth at Shea. Now, it, to me, it feels like 300. I start sweating. All the brown makeup is running down onto my shirt. And... Uh, the earpiece pops out of my ear, and now I'm, I have no communication with anybody. And I keep saying, now let's go down to the field. Al Roboski's got an interview. The guy, the guy <laughs> behind the camera's like, so they, I can hear the stage manager going, take the camera off him. Take the camera. So they do, and the stage manager comes up and is patting my face as I'm talking. And so <laughs> it, it was a blessing in disguise, though, because once the second game started, I was so worn out and so frazzled, I just did the game. Your most satisfying experience in the broadcast booth? Probably getting through a Super Bowl clean. And I say that because it seems like when you do a game like that, there's very little upside. There's a lot of downside. You know, if, if you make a glaring mistake or if you, you say something you shouldn't or what, I mean, the whole world's watching. So to have done Super Bowls and, and have had them and have had them go pretty clean, that that is really satisfying. To to get in the car at the end of that game and go all that build up, all that hype, and I didn't make a fool out of myself, that's that's a good feeling. Yeah, I, I want to take you back to when your father was ill. Um, that period of your life, you know, you're getting letters, you're hearing stories from lots of people in the community. What most surprised you about the feedback you were getting? The volume of things that he did that we as a family had no idea about. You know, there, there are a handful of famous banquet stories or people he met along the way, differences in lives that he made. But the number of people that called into the radio station the night he passed away to Camelwax in St. Louis and then the next couple days, 
I just sat, sat there and listened to it. And, and people with personal stories, how many people he walked up to, not that, that walked up to him, that he walked up to and asked them, you know, how their day was going or asked about their family or it just was mind-blowing that he took the time and was that much of a people person and made that big of a difference in his time on earth. So, uh, you know, he, you talk about going out with the needle on empty. I mean, he did everything he could do in the years that he was here. And, uh, you know, I was lucky to be his son and I, I benefit from that every day. You said you guys had great conversations late at night when you both were in the hospital or when you were in the hospital visiting him. Yeah, we talked about everything. Um, talked about the Cardinals a lot, talked about the family, talked about my family, talked about, uh, you know, what was going on on the outside walls. He was in a prison. I mean, it, it was a, it was an intensive care unit, but he was in a prison for seven months. And every, you know, anybody watching this, everybody's got a story about somebody who was sick and somebody who, but, you know, that was the time where I got to live it with him. And, you know, he and I were so close and so tight that I, I treasured those conversations late at night. And I remember one, one night in the intensive care unit, I went in there and he said, and, and it was the ultimate of ironies, he couldn't talk because he had a trach in his throat. So he had to mouth things. And he said to me, I hope my time in here laying in this bed has taught you to make the most out of your time, to live your life, have fun, build your house, do whatever you're doing, because when you're laying here, it's too late. And that just kind of hung there in the air for a while. And that that's something I'll never forget. Um, and so I, I've tried to live that way ever since. And so whether it's career or family or whatever it is that's been, and a lot's changed since he was around to talk to about a lot of this stuff, that's always kind of echoing in the back of my head. And uh, I, I think it, was, uh, it wasn't just him. I think that was God or, or something else talking to me at that time because it, it really hit home. The night before he passed, uh, you'd been in the hospital every single night for seven months, every single day for seven months. And the night before he passed, you walked out of the room, you're with your wife, your sister, and you tell them, you know, that's it. You aren't going to go back. Uh, why did you feel that way? Well, the next day was the day that they were going to pull all the tubes out and they were going to basically, we, we had made a decision as a family that it wasn't going to get better. And, and he was in so much agony with infection and you know, everything else that, that he was battling when he was in the intensive care unit, uh, that that was it. And so the next day they were going to pull the tubes out and he was going to be on his own. He'd been on a trach for months. He had had a pacemaker and that was gone and, and he wasn't going to have any assistance with his heart. And so that was going to happen at nine or 10 the next day. And I'd been in there every day for seven months and I walked, I'd said what I wanted to say to him. He heard me. We, you know, we, he was in a lucid state. And I walked out of there and said to my wife and my sister, that's it. I'm not going to come here and watch him die. I'm not doing it. This isn't a movie. I said what I wanted to say, and he knows how I feel, and that's it. And, you know, that leads into the next day, which they pulled all those tubes out of him at, let's say, 10 a.m., and we thought it would be quick. And I'm waiting by my phone kind of for the update, and it doesn't come. And my brothers and sisters are there, my mom's there, people are coming and going, and everybody's just kind of waiting, and it just isn't happening. So 2 o'clock comes, 3 o'clock comes, 4 o'clock comes, 5 o'clock. I go down to the ballpark to broadcast the Cardinals and Angels game. And why when you knew that was kind of... Well, that's, that's how he would have done it. That's what he would have wanted me to do, is go do the game. That was my job, and there wasn't anything I could do. Um, and I, I think he would want me to, to go do what I was supposed to do. And they pulled the TV down by his head as I did the game, and he has no assistance. And, and he's pretty stable. And so on my way back from Bush Stadium, I drive right by the hospital and he still hasn't passed away. And I pull over and I go in and uh, I walk up and it was, I was, 
it's the best right turn I've ever made in my life because I went up and for the first time in months, I saw my dad neatly tucked into a bed, no tubes, no beeping, no nothing. It was quiet. The nurses got up, walked out. I went in and bent over and talked in his ear and I repeated a lot of the stuff I said the night before and I said, you need to know that it's time to go and you need to know that I've got everything covered here. I'll take care of mom. I'll do my best for the family and I've got everything handled and I love you and we've had an unbelievable run together and it's time for you to let go. And I stood up and walked out and he died two minutes later. And I don't know that I've ever told that story, but something tells me that he was waiting for me to show up. And uh, I'm glad I did because had that not happened, there would have been something that was left unsaid. And uh, for him to stay alive that entire day with no help and then to listen to the game and know that I was five more miles down the highway, I think he expected me to come and uh, I'm glad I didn't let him down. What's it like for you being a dad? It's the greatest, most important job that I have in my life. Um, you know, I, growing up in the 80s, you know, all those John Hughes movies about, you know, parents that didn't get it and parents that were disconnected from their kids. And I, I would laugh at them because they were funny, uh, Breakfast Club and all that kind of stuff, 16 Candles. But I didn't really get it because my parents were so close. Uh, you know, I made a comment one time in, in the New York Times to Richard Sandomir when he said, you know, how can you call yourself the Fox voice of baseball if you're not doing every Saturday game? And I said, I'm fearful of overexposure on TV and underexposure at home. And, uh, you know, I, I lived it as my dad's son. Everything worked out great, but... Uh, Was there something you took away from that that impacted how you are as a father? Absolutely. I, I, he missed a lot of my stuff, and <laughs> simply put. And I never had any ill will or held a grudge. I, I knew why he was gone. He wasn't gone because he was out gambling. He wasn't gone because he sure. was out drinking. He was gone because he had to work. Um, but if I could, I wanted to be in a position where I could be there for that stuff. And I drive carpool in the morning and I pick up at the end of the day and go get snacks and do all that stuff and drive lunch up to them at school. And that's the most fun part of my day. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. So the HBO show is obviously, uh, you know, short-lived, uh, yeah, supposed to be. <laughs> but as short as you can have a show. Uh, I don't know that it qualifies. As a talk show, quarterly uh, ended up lasting three of the scheduled okay. four. Quarterly ended up as a third. Right. Thirdly. Or 75%. Or did yeah. it last for uh, it's not a three bad of them? Grade. It's like a solid C. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, apparently between the first and the second show, uh, it ended up becoming pretty heated between you and HBO. I, I think at one point, you know, you're sitting on in your car on the phone with HBO, literally screaming at them. Why, why yeah, did it become I can't, so? I can't heated? deny that uh, when Artie Lang came on in, and I, I can't assume that everybody knows what the Artie Lang situation is, but he came on the live HBO show, and he was exactly what I asked him to be. I mean, it was it was over the line. And Lang being Howard Stern, fan, yeah. And, and, but I, I went into him beforehand. I said, "Look, man, when you get out there, light me up. I can take it. It's fine. I want it to be fun. I want it to be." We talked afterward. I mean, he, he got pretty vulgar, and he, it was it was it was tough to sit there because I couldn't really jump back at him. I had to be the host, and and so that was hard to just sit there and take it and not give back. But that's fine. That didn't make me upset or sad or mad or like want to go suck my thumb in the corner that that's what we asked for and so HBO reacted like they were going to have him deported and the frustrating thing for me was you know we led into like pornucopia or something it wasn't like it was that this wasn't like on PBS so he did what we expected and, and he and I talked a couple days later and he's like look man I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I got a little carried away. Uh, I got the first joke, the first laugh, and I, you know, I'm a comic. I'm a comic. That's what I do. 
So that's a pretty good argument. That is impressive, so actually. I said, leading into show two, we've got to have him back. You know, everywhere I go, people are yelling, Artie Lang and whatever. I said, we've got to have, I can't act like that didn't happen. So I'm not going to walk out on the stage. And they're like, under no circumstances, are you going to even refer to Artie Lang? I said, well, you got the wrong guy because I'm not going to walk out there and, and avoid that. I said, I'm, I'm either going to do the show and talk about Artie and have Artie on in some capacity, or I'm not going to do the show because you, that's not me. And I'm not going to go out there with my hands tied behind my back. I ended up talking to the head of HBO. And uh, he said, it's over and done with. Forget it. Don't talk about it. And I'd already booked Artie to do the cold open with me in Times Square. And so we wrote it up. I said, well, think about it. Either cancel the show or have them on. But that's the way I, I, as the host, want to do it. And obviously, it's up to you. It's your network. And so they said, okay, against our better judgment, we'll let you do it. But make sure it's done well and make sure it's done tastefully, which is their right to do. And so, as it turns out, we do this bit, comedy bit, where I bump into him in Times Square and it spins him around, it spins me around, and he's looking at me like the Belushi, like, hey, hey, old buddy. And I look at him and I kind of acknowledge him and then I just sprint through Times Square and he turns and ran, he runs after me. And that's how we started the second show. And in the room, when that came up, the place went crazy. They loved it. And HBO afterward, to their credit, they were like, that was the right, it was funny. And it was the right thing to do. And it put it to bed. I never had to say one more word about it on, on the show. A great way to start a live show. It too. is. It was yeah. fun. I mean, my God, we, everything's so serious. And if you can't laugh or if you can't joke or whatever, or that, that was, nobody got killed. Nobody, it just was what it was. And you move on. I, that's just, I've never acted that way. What, what do you think you learned from, you know, the, the whole experience? I learned so much in three shows. First of all, I did a, a live talk show, which is pretty rare. And, uh, and I got through them and, and I was comfortable and uh, I liked a lot of the interviews. They weren't all great, but that's live TV. Um, but I, I think I learned to kind of make sure what I jump into suits how I want to be represented. And, and I'm sure they, they would say the same thing. We all shook hands and walked away, and it was fine. There, were, there was no, there's no ill will. Um, but I wish we had gotten more of a chance to do shows and see where it evolved, how it evolved, and where it got. Because we only did three shows, and they were spread out with months in between. And you know, somebody said to me, "That's like canceling Conan after three nights, like on Wednesday." Um, it just, I, I wish we had a better crack at doing it for a longer time and just see what, what came out of it. To get the reps. I, I mean, as you've even said you to students, to like there's nothing that, you know, can prepare you for something until you're actually, you know, in there doing it. Yeah, you can't get polished at anything unless you do it a number of times. And, and that's the only way to do play-by-play -play, and that's the only way to host a show. Back in 99, uh, you said 10 to 15 years from now, I don't think I, I will be doing play-by-play uh, -play Let me tell you why that. I said that. Okay. And, and I think I would still say that going back in time because I grew up around this. I've been around a booth and doing play-by-play -play since I can remember. And I haven't done it all my life, but you know, I've been doing, I did the Cardinals. I started in 1991 full-time. So, I mean, I've been at it for a while now. And, uh, you know, at some point, Whatever the next chapter is, it'll be. But I, I just don't see myself growing old doing it. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll, I'll eat these words and I love what I do. But I think eventually the travel, the weekend stuff, uh, you know, something else will, will come up. One thing I'd like to do is I'd like to teach. Um, and that may be difficult considering I didn't graduate college, uh, but if they're willing, some university or high school is willing to teach or hire a teacher that doesn't have a degree, I'm your guy. Uh, because I, I'd like to teach broadcasting. Um, I'd like to kind of give what I know and, and see, you know, a young person who desperately wants to be a big league announcer improve. And, uh, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm at that point. I, I had so many things given to me and just through life experience and so many things that my dad showed me by example 
that I'd like to turn around and give that to to others that, that want to do it. And it's such a popular profession now that uh, I, I think I could I could have a lot of fun doing that. If uh, I do this for the rest of my life, then I'd be the luckiest guy in the world. I just don't know. I don't know what else is out there. I mean, when you come off the year, I just came off with a vocal issue that I didn't know I'd be doing games this year. I didn't know I was going to do them last year. So life's too precious and too many things happen to to say when I'm 65, this is what I'm going to be doing. I hope I, I hope I am 65 someday. Maybe I won't be. In terms of the vocal issue, how did you figure out that something was wrong with your voice? I, I really, it took a long time to figure out because I couldn't talk. <laughs> I couldn't make a noise. I went from, I'm kidding. I mean, it, it just, I thought I had a virus. I did have a virus, but I thought I had a cold. And, and this was right after this was the right after NFL the Super season. Bowl. You're yeah. on vacation? Uh, I had gotten back from okay. vacation and uh, got a virus. And, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm horse for a couple of days. But it was a different kind of horse. It wasn't the normal kind of, I have a sore throat. Um, so I went to a doctor here in St. Louis at Barnes. And he said, I already know what it is before I look, but I'm going to look anyway. And he looked and he said, yep, like I thought you have a paralyzed vocal cord because of the sound I was making was different than if I just had a cold. Um, so I, I said, well, okay, what does that mean? Is that like a three-week thing? Is that a, it's like, uh, no, it could be three months, it could be six months, it could be 12 months, or it could be never coming back. And that was a tough sentence to listen to. And uh, so I launched myself into any kind of recuperative thing I could. And when he said never, how serious was he when he said, you know, there's the chance it could never come back? Oh, he was serious. I mean, it's an out. I think every doctor wants an out. Uh -huh. I mean, nobody can say you will be fine in three months. Nobody wants to throw that out there. But the odds were that it was going to come back. But living with it every day and gauging how my voice sounded every time I opened my mouth was something I'll, I never want to try to go through again, or trying to recover in public is, is hard to do. Well, your best friend Preston told me, I, I mean, he tried to get you on the phone for literally three months, and he, he couldn't, and he said uh, he almost flew from Charlotte, where he lives, to St. Louis on a plane to visit you because he was so worried. Um, what were you going through then? It's a weird phenomenon. Uh, it, it had nothing to do with work, that part of it. What, it. what it does do to you when you can't be heard in a bar, at a restaurant, sitting around a table, on the phone, when one side of your vocal cord, when your vocal cords come together to make a noise, one of them's laying over here, you lose all your air. So you can't keep your breath, let alone what kind of a noise you make. So I just didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to get on the phone. I didn't want to talk to him. I didn't want to, it, just because it, every time I said a sentence, I was like, oh my God, I sound awful. And, and I would just rather be quiet and, and not hear myself. So it, it kind of turns you into a recluse, recluse, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, did you really find yourself being that way? And, totally. And did, you, did you know friends or maybe family, for that matter, were concerned? I think everybody was concerned about me. Um, because it's, as I said, it's hard to recover in public and it's also, it's also hard to do the job I was doing when you can't keep your breath. So when something unexpected would happen, I had nothing in reserve to make a loud, excited noise. I couldn't emote with my voice and it just became, uh, just really boring. Right. And I, but then regular conversation, you know, it just was... It was brutal. And I remember doing an appearance on Jimmy Fallon's show. And I, I heard that. I, I looked you back. I, like ass. I sounded awful. <laughs> and I left there. It's crazy how your mind works. Because I left there and I thought, I sounded good. You know, your, your mind tells you something different. And I think it was the only way I could have gotten through that is to kind of lie to myself a little bit. Because if I had gone back and watched that, I probably would have shut it down. Um, but I'm, I'm lucky to work at a place, and for a man, David Hill, who said, take the rest of the season off. Take a year off. 
whatever needs to be, get right, and we'll go from there. Another person close to you said just that few-year period was kind of the darkest period of your life with everything that you were going through then. Um, I mean, to what extent did you find it as tough as kind of those around you? It was were tough to go it through to it. It was tough to go through it. Um, but everybody's got trials in life. Mm -hmm. um, I tell you, it, it led me to church more often. Uh, it led me into a real introspective place that I really had never been before. It made me worried about what I was going to do work-wise going forward if it didn't come back. Uh, but that said, I look back on it and it was, people say this and I never believed them, but it, it was the greatest thing that could have happened to me. It made me reevaluate everything and it made me not take for granted stuff that I was just blowing off. The quality sound of my voice, you know, was something that I never thought of. Um, I'd only had laryngitis one time and all of a sudden I'm worried just about not what I'm going to say, but how I'm going to say it and what sound's going to come out. And, and it makes you appreciate all you have. And, and I, uh, believe me, I appreciate all I have. Uh, it, it, since you've been back, has it really been the most enjoyable time broadcasting? Oh, it's, it's been unbelievable. It's, it's like, really, I mean, it's you, been unbelievable. It's like with as long as you've been doing it. Yeah. Me? Because, it, I would imagine I would probably liken it to going to the plate with a weighted donut around a bat like they warm up with in the on-deck circle. And then they knock that thing off and they step into the plate. To not have to worry about that and to know that I've got my voice back, even though because I've been talking for an hour and a half, it's shredded right now, has uh, been awesome. And, and it's, it's made Sundays and Saturdays so much more fun for me. And, and I can just relax and do my job again. In your opinion, who's the home run king? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I kind of look at it, maybe the unseen or unsaid asterisk. I mean, the home run king to me is Hank Aaron. Uh, but statistically, it's Barry Bonds. And I would be a hypocrite if I just said what I said, which was, it's impossible to say certain guys are and certain guys aren't. We think we know. Um, and, and Bonds is in a situation where uh, he has said that he didn't know what he was putting onto or into his body. Uh, so I, I, I just look at it as almost two different records, two different times in the game. And, and it doesn't upset me like it does others. I just think we have to realize that that was all over baseball, a lot more than we knew at the time. And, uh, you know, there's Hank Aaron in a different era, and there's Bonds now. Tell about your experience with Barry Bonds. Oh, yeah, I, I was, it was a long time ago, early in my career, and I was in the dugout with Don Baylor who said, you know, it's just such a shame that Barry seems like he just doesn't have any fun playing the game or he's ready to yell at somebody or bite somebody's head off if they ask the wrong question. He said, oh, Barry? Barry's bark's way worse than his bite. Come on, I'll introduce you. And so he gets out of the cage, and Don Baylor goes, Barry, this is one of our radio announcers. Uh, Joe Buck, you know, Jack Buck, this is his kid. And Barry's like, so? It's like, okay, I had my hand out, and that was it. And so I, I just walked back with my tail between my legs and looked at Don. I was like, yeah, you're right great guy. <laughs> uh, how about your best Mark McGuire story? Um, you know, Mark was always misunderstood to me. Uh, and I say that because he just was kind of the reluctant superstar uh, at that time. Now we all, he's admitted performance enhancing drug use and, and that's a different conversation. But at that time, when he would take batting practice and, and people would react, even in Montreal, they'd come early to see him take batting practice. He's like, I just don't. He got out of the cage one time and he and I just hit it off. So we always talked. He said, I, I don't get it. I don't know why they're all clapping and hooting and hollering. I'm like, Mark, you're hitting balls where nobody has ever hit them in this stadium. They're freaking out. He's like, yeah, well, I mean, who cares? And, and that's kind of how he was genuinely. So when he became you know, the new single season home run guy. And he would be around St. Louis and people would come up to him. He's just like, kind of like, what do you want? 
he just he didn't buy into all that stuff, which <clears throat> I give him a lot of credit for. I he just you know he walked away from thirty million dollars at the end of his career because he didn't want to be a batting practice trick pony. He just he wanted to be either Mark McGuire or not, and uh, he walked away. Should a known or even assumed performance-enhancing drug user whose statistics warrant induction into the Baseball Hall of Fame be inducted? To me, either nobody goes in or the guys who statistically are in that category, then they all go in. Um, but, but to sit back and just based on physical appearance or what we think we know, start randomly picking out guys who we should keep out and guys, and I say we, it's up to the baseball writers anyway, so I have nothing to do with it. But to me, we don't know what anybody's doing. And, you know, you go back to the Mitchell report, that was one stream through the Mets clubhouse and Kirk Rodomsky or Rodimsky or whatever his name is. That, and it, it all fed off him. That, that's one guy. I mean, there, there are more suppliers, I would assume, than one person. So, again, we don't know what anybody's done, and it's impossible to sit back and be 100% accurate saying, well, he did, he didn't, he did, he didn't. Therefore, that guy should go in and that guy shouldn't. We just don't know. You obviously had the opportunity to work with your father for uh, many years in the broadcast booth. Your favorite memory from your time broadcasting with him would be what? He and I missed a lot of time together because he did travel a ton. And he and I, you know, there, if he got it to one of my high school football games or high school baseball games, it was a big effort. And, and I appreciated it because he was... He had a lot going on, and he had to always scramble and always try and, you know, do the extra thing to try and, and keep the family going. He had a lot of people that he had to support. So because of that, what I most treasure about that time has nothing to do really with baseball. It's getting on the bus after a game and sitting next to him and just riding the bus to the airport. Uh, it's checking into the hotel, bleary-eyed at 3 o'clock in the morning in Houston and shuffling up to up to our rooms and uh, meeting him for lunch and going to the park together and being in the booth together and working with him as a as a colleague instead of as my dad and that you know I was smart enough to realize that wasn't going to last forever he, he was you know at the time he was late 60s or into his 70s and I, I knew that was a short window and uh, so because of that I enjoyed every minute of it. And some of the time you missed out on when you were younger you were able to kind of get back when you were with him broadcasting games? Yeah, and I, I did. And I, I saw a side of him that my mom never saw. I saw a side of him that my brothers and sisters never saw. Because really? Because I, yeah, I mean, you, you know, it's the age-old thing. You get to really know somebody, whether it's a girlfriend, a spouse, another couple, whatever, maybe, when you travel. And I, I've, I saw my dad like that for years. And, and it was great to watch him because he just had a way of gliding through life. Nothing bothered him. I am so different than him in that way. I'm a worrier. I worry about everything. He was, you know, his favorite saying was, don't holler till you're hurt. And, you know, worry, I'll tell you when to worry. And that's, that's just how he was. That's how he lived. It wasn't just a saying, a cute line. And, uh, and, and I wish I had more of that in me. But, you know, he just had a way of, you know, he could fall asleep on a plane in five seconds. I'm sitting up there, the first bump, I'm like, we're dead. So I, I, that's, that's just how we're, we're different. How would you say, you, outside of that, how would you say you guys are most different? Um, well, my God. I mean, I, I had such a, a privileged upbringing. I mean, I think people think that we were rolling in dough and upper class and all that stuff. That, that my, my dad never... Uh, never enjoyed that. I mean, he, he, he never made a ton of money doing what he did. I mean, he made a great living and, and we had an awesome childhood, but you know, it wasn't jets and mansions and all that other kind of stuff. It, we just had a good, comfortable life. And, you know, he grew up in the depression and went to world war two and got shot and, you know, had eight kids. And I mean, we're different almost all the way across the board. I, I don't, I think we have way more differences than similarities, but I, I, I try to be a good person like him, and I try to treat people like he did, and, I, and I've followed him into, into this business because I admired him so much. Really a pleasure.
That's it? Yeah, that is it. All right. Thanks for listening to another edition of the In-Depth Podcast. If you'd like video clips from this interview and a tour of Joe Buck's office, youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Uh, Plus, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you enjoyed this interview, give us a rating and review. Share your thoughts. It means a lot. Thanks again for listening.